0: Welcome to episode four of the Various and Sundry podcast. I'm your host, Matt Harmon, joined in studio as always by my good friend and partner in podcasting, the man, the myth, the legend, John Sloat. Matt Harmon, what's going on? Well, we have made it to Super Bowl week. That's what's this going on. This is exciting. Yeah,
1: I yeah. love Super Bowl week.
0: It is a sort of uh, not
1: just for sports fans, but it's a it's a cultural event now. Is what it's become. Yeah. Before we get to that, uh, we want to be sure to mention you should follow us on Twitter at at VNS Pod, uh, and if you want to drop us an email, we love listener emails. You can send them to variousandcundrypodcast at gmail dot com. All right. Yeah. And I'll just add, there's a chance if your email or your tweet is good enough, we'll mention it
0: in the podcast. No promises. (laughs) We're we're trying to hold our listeners to a certain standard. It's got to be a good email. Yeah. Yeah. Well crafted. Yeah. And as far as a tweet, maybe uh, humor is especially appreciated. If it's clever, it's got a chance.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So we're at Super Bowl week. And uh, we've got the Chiefs and the 49ers, a contrast in styles.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The Chiefs have uh, one of the high-flying offenses in the league uh, with Pat Mahomes, whose dad was a New York Met, uh, which I would like to point out. Okay. Um, And then uh, the 49ers that seem to have a bit of an old-school mentality. They run the ball. Yes. uh, They play defense, and they have a couple of stars that have brought them to this Place they play safe football for mm-hmm. lack of a better word and rely on their uh, superstars.
0: Yes, and uh, in particular, one of the strengths of their team is the uh, is the defensive line, in part anchored by Nick Bosa, yeah, first round draft pick from Ohio State, who has been. Tearing it up. Did, did I read that he was defensive rookie of the year, perhaps? Or I'm sure he's in that conversation. About probably. I I'd seen that maybe I, that award had been announced, I but I
1: can't remember. I can't think of anybody else they give it to. But he's yeah. just a monster. Um, so it, it will be interesting to see. And if he wins the Super Bowl, I think it pays dividends because it was, oh gosh, probably a year and a few months ago where he was criticized for saying, hey, I'm injured. I'm sitting out the rest of the season. Yeah, he got injured in like the third game of the year for Ohio State. And uh
0: there was some there was some criticism. I think the more rational Ohio State fans, there are some, you know. <laughs> Every fan base has, it's, the its, exception. has yeah. its idiot lunacy fringe where, you know, they crushed Nick Bosa for not coming back. And basically he revealed afterwards that maybe theoretically he could have come back at the like for the bowl game. But at that point it seems like why risk further injury when you literally have millions of dollars on on the line there. And, sure. And they weren't playing in the in the college football playoff at that point, so there's also a you know, weighing of the significance of that bowl game versus just an ordinary bowl game kind of thing. But Sure. In any case, um we will no doubt probably have some uh, Super Bowl reflections in a in a future episode post game analysis not just of the uh, of the game, but inevitably of commercials. And, commercials, one of my favorite. parts. And yeah. uh, I'm sure we'll have at least a discussion of the food that we will partake of, since we'll be uh, we will
1: be attending the same Super yeah. Bowl party. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited for that. Yeah. Um, it's a tradition unlike any other, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and the the dips are, are flowing. Yeah, and it's it's. Um, I'm 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 it's getting, not a healthy evening. No, it's
0: terribly unhealthy. But anyway, but. The obviously uh, the the monstrous story uh, over the weekend in the sports world, and one that far transcended the realm of sports, yeah. was the shocking and unexpected death of basketball legend, uh, NBA superstar, and uh, arguably one of the five six greatest players of all time, Kobe Bryant. Yeah, and his daughter as well as uh, seven others in a helicopter crash outside of Los Angeles on Sunday morning.
1: So um, tell me about what your initial reactions were. Yeah, yeah. So here here on Eastern Time, uh, it was after church. I had just woken up from a nap. Uh, And what does one do when they wake up from a nap? I check Twitter. (laughs) Of course, especially on a Sunday afternoon. On a Sunday afternoon. (laughs) And so I'm looking at my phone, and all I see is a tweet from former Mets catcher Paul LaDuca. Mm-hmm and uh it's talking about uh r i p mamba and which is Kobe's nickname right, and uh just kind of like no, no, this isn't true and then and then I saw uh, t m z made the report and then I thought there's a good chance this isn't true and then uh i think I think when Woj uh confirmed it uh that was when I kind of went, oh my goodness,
0: yeah, that was kind of the anchor point of moving it from uh could this really be true to know this happened? Yeah. Um, I, I, do you want to talk now about the, the media coverage of this or do you want to talk more about Kobe? Let's talk a little bit about Kobe first. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about, so Kobe I think, first. I think there's some things to talk about when it comes to the, how the media handled this. Yeah. But in any case, um, so Kobe probably would have been, so he, let's see, he started his career in 1997, I think. Is that I think right? So that sounds about right. Um, and so that would have placed you at the ripe old age of
1: 97. I'd been nine 10 yeah. years old. Yeah.
0: So it's my guess is, is that Kobe is really part of your formative basketball uh, watching when it comes to coming into an awareness of the NBA and sort of the. He was the dominant player of your youngest years of really being aware of what's going
1: on in the NBA and watching it. Yeah, him and Shaq yeah. is, is what I remember watching. I remember watching the two of them win championships together and mm-hmm. have that inevitable feud with one another. Yeah, uh, But watching, watching Kobe do what Kobe did on the court, yeah. or, unlike anybody else, uh, right. at, at that specific time was yeah. amazing. I, yeah. He's such a good player. Um, the, I'll, I remember watching the I believe it was the eighty-one point game, and then his, the final game of his career, scoring over sixty. Which ESPN
0: actually showed a replay of that game last night. Did they really? Um, against the Utah Jazz, and uh, he scored sixty. Now it it took him fifty shots to get there, <laughs> but. Um, but still impressive at
1: 37 that he put up 60 points. Yeah, so so he was formative in my basketball watching experience. I loved watching Kobe. I loved seeing him play. Everything mm-hmm. that he did on the court was was amazing. Um, they there's a hashtag Mamba mentality. Yeah, um, and you could when you watched him play, you could see it. You could yep. see it in his eyes that like he was both. he was going to go hard on both ends. He was going to mm-hmm. play defense incredibly incredibly hard and then he was gonna he was gonna light you up on the other end yeah i think that uh that is ultimately what
0: separated him from his peers when it comes to uh his place within basketball history uh talent wise obviously off the charts but there's a lot of really talented players in the nba but what would separate kobe was he had another gear mentally yeah where he was as locked in and intense and focused and you know it, it can sound like a cliche, but that sort of will to win, I'm not sure. Other than Michael Jordan, I've ever seen a basketball player with a comparable. I think Jordan had what Jordan was is sort of the gold standard, and Kobe probably was either equal to or maybe just a, a, a just a slight hair below Michael. And I, I can't think of another NBA player who's
1: really in their league in that sense. Yeah, and for me, where I think Kobe edges Mike is on uh, is on what happened after the game, what happened after he left basketball. So Kobe was an incredibly curious individual. I mean, loved mm-hmm. wanted to learn about lots of different uh, things. Certainly, certainly remained closely tied to the game. Was very involved with the WNBA. Having yeah. daughters, uh, those yep. sorts of things, but but also won an Oscar, um, and, yeah. and did uh, had a number of other business projects that he was working on that, that we may not know the full extent of, and that I think that's one of the things that like inspires me a little bit more about Kobe is yeah. he was not simply locked into a single craft yeah. um, as basketball, but but had a, a pretty diverse interest pool.
0: Yeah, I, I saw a, tr- a tweet yesterday by I think it was Darren Ravel. Uh, who said that Kobe made more in his business ventures in the, what, I guess, like three, four years since he's retired yeah. than he made in salary in his entire NBA career. Now, Kobe had, you know, truckloads of endorsement yeah, the stuff. shoe deals. And, but he yeah. still made a truckload of money when it comes to salary. And the fact that Kobe made more money in his business ventures after uh is evidence that he, uh, was, that he was more than just a basketball player. And he saw himself as trying to have an impact outside of the world of basketball uh, besides just being one of the great legends of the game. Yeah. Do you want to, you want to talk a little bit about the media coverage now? I, I want to say one more thing yeah, uh, about, about Kobe. I think part of what made him who he was and made him a more diverse person in terms of interests and that sort of thing is the fact that he grew up overseas. At least a chunk of his childhood was spent overseas because his dad played professionally overseas. And so uh, Kobe spent a chunk of his childhood overseas, uh, I believe in Italy. He's fluent in Italian. Hmm. And so uh, I think you speak to anyone who's who spent that kind of time in a culture outside of the United States and then comes back there's always just a broadening of perspective that is hard to match that someone who just grows up in the United States just is isn't able to 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 bring to the table
1: Yeah no that's a that's a great point yeah
0: So let's talk a little bit about the media coverage and uh, one uh, I think, The most disturbing piece of this for me was finding out that uh, TMZ reported this before the authorities were able to notify Kobe's wife. Yeah. And so from what I understand, she found out Uh. through through media reports rather than through the authorities informing her, which is just hard for me to wrap my brain around what – what that must be like. It's hard enough, obviously, no matter how you find out, by the way, your husband and your uh, daughter were killed in a, in a helicopter accident. But uh, to find it out through media reports, and then, of course, there's the obvious, well, is this really true? What's going on? There's just, I'm sure there's a frantic trying to reach somebody to find out, you know, trying to, you know, call Kobe's cell or whatever, like, what's going on here? Does anyone know? And then. You know that I, I just can't imagine what that would be like.
1: Yeah, and there's already so many layers of difficulty to this, right? We we have a man dying w- well before um, he should have, as well as a as a 13 year old uh, his 13 year old daughter and, and a helicopter full of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, that on its own is tragic. incredibly tragic. Yeah. Um, and it's. Doubled by the fact that this he happens to be famous, Uh, right? And then it's Upped even a little bit more by the fact that TMZ is reporting this and and, you know TMZ is one of those news sources where like Sometimes they break things really early and sometimes they break things really early and they're just not true Right, and so the you're kind of like is it true is it not true and and yeah Unfortunately, they were yeah, they're sort of on the edge
0: of not really respectable journalism, but they do break a decent number of stories yeah. on the front end. But I think part of that is because they don't feel the necessity of trying to double source something, triple source something, confirm it, and then go with it. They're just like, we got a source. We got one you know, source on this. We're running with We're it. We're running it. And uh, I think one of the things that struck me is that you notice that some of the more, uh, for lack of a better term, mainstream media, you know, like in ABC News or, or even ESPN and those sorts of places, you noticed they were a little slower, but you could tell that they felt the pressure once they sort of confirmed, okay, yeah, Kobe was on that helicopter. At that point, then, uh, there was a lot of speculation that started. And yeah, ABC News, sad. in particular, uh. I can't remember the name of the reporter, but uh, there was a, there was, Someone on the ABC News uh, report about this, as the information was still settling, that at one point uh, speculated, didn't say definitively, but it was sort of a uh, something along the lines of, we think it's possible that all four of his daughters were on that helicopter with Kobe. Well, of course it was possible, but, right. but that's just— It's completely uh, irresponsible,
1: though, yes. as a reporter— to throw that out there yes. completely irresponsible on air in yeah. front of in front of millions of people you, you just can't you, you can't do that right and and he
0: understandably got crushed for that yeah and i don't know that I, not, i'm not aware he's lost his job or anything but um you know it's one of those things where i think news outlets like that like abc news espn they feel the pressure of wanting to try to get the scoop and try to get the information first. Sure. And that can sometimes override the, let's make sure we get it right. Yeah. there's, And that's a tension within the journalistic world to begin with. Get it first, especially in our 24-hour news cycle, uh, as well as social media fueled. What's the information? Everyone wants the latest, right? You and I were both, you know, constantly refreshing our Twitter feeds. Is there any news, and right? Texting back and forth, checking right. ESPN.com. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we we obviously are eager for information, but I I would hope that we as a culture would be willing to say we should be willing to wait for things to be confirmed rather than just throwing out
1: wild possibilities here. Yeah. And and to our conversation last week, it does, it does show a little bit in our mainstream media, the desire to be new and novel over faithful and Mm -hmm. accurate.
0: Yeah. So what, why do you think this has been such a cultural phenomenon? Because it feels like even people who were not big basketball fans have been, at some level, affected by his death. Why do you think that is?
1: I don't know. I've been trying to figure that out. I don't I don't know if I have a good answer, uh, other than he was involved in more than just basketball, mm-hmm. right? He, he did produce art and yeah. uh, some different things. Uh, he was on late-night talk shows, so he was one of those players that did transcend— uh, so he was regularly on Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, uh, oh, who's the other guy on NBC? Uh, Fallon. He's on Jimmy Fallon. I mean, he was, he was on all those talk shows. So people knew him and spoke with him and yeah. and had an understanding of who he was. And he was also in one of the bigger markets of our country as sure, well. Sure, sure. And so sometimes those athletes can transcend a little bit more.
0: Yeah. I'm sure that's part of it. Um, I think one angle that... Uh, comes to mind for me is the fact that he's forty one. Just super young. He's just really young. Yeah. And you add you add the fact that his his 13 year old daughter was on that helicopter. And by by all reports, uh, he was a very involved father. And um and so that you know that's even an interesting part of his sort of transformation as a as a man because, you know, he did have uh, an incident in a hotel room in Colorado where he was accused of rape and that case was never tried in the, in the criminal courts, but it was settled out of court, or in a civil trial I guess, it was settled out of court from a civil proceeding, and he basically admitted that he had committed adultery, denied mm-hmm. committing uh, an act of rape but uh, that uh, I, from what I remember almost led to his divorce, they reconciled and it, it seems like he was a very involved father, and uh, you know, even during Kobe's last game, they, ha- you know, his wife and daughters are on the sidelines there, and um, so I think that there's an element of even just the tragedy of a wife losing a daughter and a husband, and leaving behind three daughters without a dad. I believe one. They just had another one too, right? right? Like one less than a year, one. year, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's part of it. Is the is that sort of recognition that this this just feels so wrong that mm-hmm. someone at age forty one, you know, theoretically with decades of life ahead of them, and you know, for me, I think there was there was an element of, well, gosh, I'm forty six. Yeah. you know, this guy's younger than me and he died. You know, there, there, there can be a little bit of a sobering, like, you know, I'm I'm not traveling on helicopters, but I, it could just as easily happen. What? <laughs> I know my salary here d- does not allow for You're that. not using the helipad? Not, no, no. No, that's not part of my contract. Maybe when I renegotiate <laughs> it next year, I can r- wrap that into it. But, um, you yeah, know, that was a little sobering for me, I think, on that front. But I think it also uh, coalesced with, my grandfather passing away on, uh, Friday night, Saturday morning as well. So, uh, you know, just reconfronted with the reality of death. And, uh, you know, in, in the Harmon household, we have a sort of birthday tradition where we, uh, where we read Psalm 90. And as part of that, uh, Psalm, uh, it's written by Moses, and there's a, there's a line in there where, where Moses basically writes, so teach us to number our days so that mm-hmm. we can live with a heart of wisdom. And, and that's always uh, a sort of reminder to us as a family of, to be grateful for the life that we have and not to take it for granted. But speaking of numbering our days, our, uh, our main topic for today was, uh, is, is going to be church history. Now, my guess is is that when some people hear that, they've turned off the podcast already. <laughs> yes, right. Please stay with us. We're, we're, we're gonna we're gonna try to make a compelling case as to why why it's valuable. But um, let, let me start with just asking why do you think uh, why do you think, and we'll speak. I think primarily of evangelicals. That's sure. that's our tribe that we're it's our wheelhouse, f- familiar yeah. with. Why do you think many evangelicals either don't care about or don't t- make the effort
1: to read or study church history? Why is that? That's a good question. I'm not 100% sure. I don't have any data or a survey. My impression is is mm-hmm. that understanding and learning church history is difficult. Uh, it takes reading, um, reading of Primary sources that may not be the most enthralling, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and I think several of the several leading voices in church history—I'm not going to name any names—of um, past generations were generally a little bit dull, and so, <laughs> for lack of a better word, I'm sorry. Uh, and so and so it kind of got this sort of <laughs> yeah reputation as being something that was both difficult to understand. Uh, uh, boring at times, uh, and, and boring classes you had to take in college or, okay. or seminary. Yeah, what do you, why do you th- why do you think that is? Why do you think evangelicals? Yeah, I, I think
0: that's certainly a part of it. I, I would add to it. Uh, evangelicalism tends to have a strongly pragmatic bent.
1: Yeah, and that's and, a great point. And there yeah. is
0: there is really nothing typically immediately pragmatic about church history rarely uh, is there a sort of, you know, you read or you study church history, and there's a easy, obvious, direct line to, therefore, on Tuesday of this week, this is how I should live. Mm-hmm. That, that's just not typically how church history tends to work. And if you have a very pragmatic bent about you, uh, church history can seem like, well, that, that's not telling me what to do or how to live, so therefore, I, I don't know why I should pay attention to it
1: yeah yeah no that's a great point and i i would also say people that come to me and go oh i'm a history buff i love history i kind of go well we're not going to be friends and i'm going to avoid you <laughs> and why is that i just don't want to be bored to death by their by their interaction and it probably has something to do with the pragmatic piece as well i think i tend to be a pragmatic guy where i'm like nah, this doesn't impact me so i'm gonna, I'm so gonna move on it Is this the
0: point where it's appropriate to note that you teach Yeah, church history class here Yeah, I think so. So, um, yeah. Okay, so you have that reaction, but yet you teach church history. I would say I used to have that reaction. I would say
1: that was something through high school and through college, I sort of had that reaction. Um, But in the last couple of years have grown and matured, I think, and and, uh, have... Come back to it and found it helpful. Found it really interesting. And I think as I approached it, as I was able to approach it as this is the story of the church, and I am a part of that stream, has been has been a helpful reality for me. Okay, uh, and being able to think of myself as a part of this, um, a part of something stretching back uh, a few thousand years. Gotcha. so. So,
0: why do you? What is the danger, from your perspective, of evangelicals not reading and studying church history. And and let's let's be clear. We're not we're not talking about the average person in an evangelical church, you know, reading 8 to 10 church history books a year and being competent to lecture or anything like that. Yeah. We're just talking about having a a broad understanding and awareness of church history. What what are the dangers when you have uh, churches, local congregations and even pastors who are not particularly uh, aware of church history or
1: know it very well. Yeah. So um, I, I use this article by Carl Truman. Uh, he wrote it in Trials of Theology. I imagine it's also mm-hmm. on his blog. Uh, but I use, and he he really presents two dangers of church history. And we cover this in in the first uh, lecture of church history. And uh, we talk about uh, people have a tendency to either idealize it, right? yeah. think. Oh my goodness! The past was incredible. Right. Why can't be? Why can't we be more like that yeah. uh, again? Mm-hmm. Uh, we need, you know, we need to really, really buckle down to the way the church was when Martin Luther was running things. Right. You know, you, you know, there's there's sort of that reaction. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, the, the other thing is. people tend to demonize uh, everything that's happened in church history sure Uh, and so we we go oh my goodness look at the evils of humanity throughout the church look at you know look at the Borgias look at the popes look at all all these different things look at all the evil things that they did um, in the name of Christ and Mm -hmm. and we need to distance ourselves from these and we need to to not uh, you know as we talk about church history we we gotta always see it as evil right um and and I, I think either of those extremes are are really poor. I think we we both got to be able to look at uh, look at church history and say, you want to know what <laughs> that was wrong, and this is my heritage, right. and my heritage is is evil at some level. Right. Uh, While at the same time, I would say making
0: sure that we understand what was happening within its cultural context, mm-hmm. because. I do think that one of the tendencies can be to look back at a period in church history and go, I can't believe anybody disagreed on this. Like, what were they thinking? And they're like, they must have been like, – like, they had these blind spots. And, and the obvious one from our context is looking back and looking at slavery. Sure. Well, how can Jonathan Edwards have owned slaves and all the – you know, like, how is that even possible? Like, they were so blind. And, and in one sense, you're like, you're right. They were. But then the re- reaction can often be, we need to dismiss everything that figure that this figure from church history talked about because, well, he was a slave owner or something. Like, Well, we could probably recognize that it's a little bit more nuanced than that, and there are cultural conditions involved that might have made it harder for him to see those blind spots, just as we have our own blind spots in our culture. Yeah. That 200 years from now, people will look back and go— I can't believe that Christians weren't more alert to or aware to fill in the blank, that we're just in part blind to because of our cultural context.
1: Yeah, and and that's why I think we need we need a balanced and nuanced approach to church history. You know, we can't we can't say, "Oh my goodness, everything Jonathan Edwards did was amazing uh, and and wonderful," right? Uh, But we also can't look at him and go, "Well, he is the sinner in the hand of an angry God," you know? Right. So. Um yeah we got to we got to we got to find um uh, nuance nuance uh find something nuanced and balanced sure um I, I do think there are some positives and we go over these in church history so right now i'm just going off over my church history outline but um <laughs> but it, it does give us a a language to build on uh yeah. so it gives us a, a foundation of like oh this is what trinity means or this is mm-hmm. what justification means or this is yep. what fill in the blank means um. Um. I, and like I said earlier, it allows us to see ourselves in the stream of church history as, as we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. Yeah. And I think in a culture that likes to see ourselves as novel and new, uh, right. uh, that's that's a helpful piece to to ground us a little bit. Uh, and then I think uh, it gives us a lens through which to see current situations. So this is something I try to do in church history, that there's nothing new really under the sun, that everything right. we see has, has come to light. Uh, so we always do uh, a heresy project and... Look at a look at an ancient heresy and how have we seen it develop throughout the ages and how do we mm-hmm. see it in the modern day? So. Yeah,
0: and I think that's that's really helpful. Um, when you uh, let's think personally, what are what are some of the things personally where you feel like you have benefited from your study of church history? I, and maybe give me a specific example. I mean, obviously, it would fall I think within the the, the number of things that. We've talked about here, but can you maybe pinpoint in your own experience from your own life, maybe maybe it was a doctrine that you felt like you came to a better understanding of by looking at church history or, um, you know, maybe a a situation, a contemporary situation where you're like, oh, well, when you understand this piece of church history, that makes a little bit more sense or gives me some categories to to think about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Goodness, you're putting me on the spot a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we didn't talk about this in our vast show prep. Um, well, you are the church history professor here. Yeah, I I would say a, a couple things come to mind. Um, I I don't think I ever, in our current context, as I was growing up, there were uh, wars that were beginning, uh, you know, 9-11 happened, and I didn't understand why it happened, uh, and uh Then we went to war in the Middle East, right? almost immediately following 9-11, and and all these things were going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I've studied church history, I think I've got a greater understanding of how volatile the relationship between Christianity and the Muslim world Mm -hmm. um, has gone. Yeah, it's huge. And so I I think I kind of went... Oh, and you know, to, to think about the Moors in and Spain and, and, and those sorts of things was was a very, very helpful piece for me in church history. I'm like, oh, look at look at how we're still seeing this conflict yeah. in, in one way or another today. Right. The Crusades. Um, I mean, you can go back, you know,
0: almost you can go back even almost more than a millennia. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> to to see this conflict played out. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that's I think that's one way that I've been able to, to look at something in our modern context where it's like mm-hmm. where you know, why why is there such volatility here? Why is there such hate? Why can't we why can't we all just get along that's you right. and uh <laughs> and look at church history and go, that's why. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that that's that's probably something for me. Gotcha. A- anything for you? Uh can I can I put you on the spot sure. like that? Yeah, yeah, I think that for me, uh
0: a couple of things come to mind when it's when you consider uh, from I think one of the one of the helpful pieces is having some sense of how denominations and traditions have developed and come to come to be when it comes to uh, understanding our current cultural situation where you have a variety of denominations and that kind of stuff and I think Having some sense of the historical development of those things and how they trace back generally speaking at least in our traditions to the to the Protestant Reformation mm-hmm. but for me, the even bigger piece is reading individual theologians or reading biographies that have been super helpful to me. Jonathan Edwards has been uh, someone that in my own personal reading has been a huge influence on me and uh, in fact named my oldest son after him in part the fact that he uh, yeah he really wanted that mention on the I podcast, know he didn't was he, he. Yeah. was driving hard for that so there it is John um, the uh, the fact that he just he he speaks and writes in ways that are very compelling and obviously different from what we read uh, today. And I think he's just, he helped me in a lot of different ways in thinking about the glory of God, the beauty of Christ, and uh, the whole issue of free will and understanding that in light of God's sovereignty. Some of those pieces were really helpfully put together for me by Jonathan Edwards. And another one I'll mention is John Owen. Yeah. Another Puritan who, again, because of their historical and cultural context, they write and and speak about things in ways that we don't today. And that can just be a very f- breath of fresh air and a very illuminating sense of, okay, he's saying something that is similar to what I've heard before, but he's saying it in a way that's that's fresh enough that it's making me think about it in new ways. And so I, I, I've i found those kinds of things helpful. But uh, I think it's probably good for us at this point maybe to to transition into so if, 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 you've, if, you're, if you're a listener and you're like, okay, you've at least made me think maybe I should dip the toe into some church history, where do I start? What are some places that would be accessible, easy entry points for getting into
1: the church history pool without maybe doing a deep dive? Well, I know uh, the textbook I use for my church history class, uh, because for most of our undergraduate students, it is an introduction. Right. Most of them have not read widely in church history. Uh, I, I usually start them with uh, Bruce Shelley's Church History in Plain Language. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a little bit longer book, yeah. uh, but it's broken up into pages that are seven, eight chapters, and it tells church history as a story. Yeah. So it's not getting bogged down with, with details, dates, th- those sorts of things, but but... Um, obviously uses those things, but but tells it as a story, and I, sure. I've I've found it to be tremendously helpful um, for my students. Yeah, uh, putting it together.
0: Good, yeah, I agree. I, I, that was one of the earlier church history books that I read that was super helpful. I would add to that one that's going to be a little bit shorter, but I think hits uh, as the title would suggest. Uh, Mark Knoll wrote a book called Turning Points uh, that covers like the key. Major events in church history, from basically the early church up to I can't remember if he goes all the way through the Reformation. I think he goes to the Reformation
1: and beyond I think he said like a fourth or fifth edition now. So he comes into the modern day, yeah,
0: yeah. and so that's a good sort of uh, read that's on the shorter end. it's 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 readable. And the fact that he um it's just nice to get those sort of benchmarks, yeah. you know as a starting point of you know, the, the key moments. And then you can kind of go back and start filling in some of the gaps and the details. And I think that's a good place. One other smaller book that I'll recommend there is, uh, Michael Reeves wrote a book called the unquenchable flame about the reformation. That is excellent. Yeah. yeah. So good. It's quite good. Yeah. Very readable. And I think honestly, that's part of the problem with, with history in general is too often the way that it's taught is dry. Yeah. But if you tell the stories well, like I think of my own experience, I had two great church, well, really three great church history professors that come to mind in my experience. I had John Woodbridge at Trinity, who was mm-hmm. a remarkable storyteller, and uh, did it so well that it was engaging. Uh, also, uh, Doug Sweeney at Trinity, now at Beeson, but uh, he was able just to compellingly craft a narrative about American church history, about, uh, Jonathan Edwards. And then, uh, another professor that I had in another context is, um, John Hanna, uh, from Dallas, Hmm. phenomenal storyteller. And again, it's the stories that stick with you about the, these individuals. So anyway, any other books that
1: are places to start, yeah, any any sort of biography is really helpful. Yeah. Uh you know, just to give you a flavor of of the time. Uh, I couldn't uh Crossway has a really excellent biography on uh, uh, John Newton. Uh, that's mm-hmm. that's quite good. Uh, and then Is that are you talking about the one that's part of the uh Theologians on the Christian Life series or is is that something separate? I'm not separate? sure if it's in that series or okay. not, but but I it is it, it was a fantastic read. Okay. Um, and then uh, really anything by Thomas Kidd I find, I find really helpful, mm-hmm. uh, and he's written biographies about George Whitfield and sure. uh, Ben Franklin, even though necessarily we wouldn't call him a believer necessarily. No, but, we would not. Um, but uh, Thomas Kidd's stuff is wonderful. And, and he it, just came out with a textbook, I believe,
0: on uh, American church history, if I remember correctly.
1: Yeah, I think it was a year, year and a half ago yeah, that came so. out. And then uh, I, would, I, would, I would also just make a plug for—there's a ton of YouTube channels that mm-hmm. run through church history lectures, and, and they're actually quite good. Yeah. On that theme, I will
0: point to uh, John Piper. For years at his pastor's conference, every year he'd pick a key figure from church history, and he would essentially do a biographical sketch of the person and then some takeaways as to what we can learn from that particular figure. Those were subsequently published in uh, a series called The Swans Are Not Silent hmm. in book form. But the audio and the video of many of them are available online. In fact, we'll, we'll go ahead and put up that up in the show notes that you can find the original audio and some, in some cases even the video of that. Uh, so if you're, not, if you're a person who's like, I just am not a reader like that, well— those might be some opportunities to uh, listen to the audio while you're exercising, while you're doing work around the house, or whatever context, driving in the car. Uh, we, don't, we certainly don't want to encourage watching the videos while sure, you're driving, yeah. so there's our mm. PSA of, of not doing that. And then, um, the, so that might be an even easier entry point for someone who's like, oh, gosh, the thought of sitting down and reading a, a book about church history is a bit much, so... We uh, we need to start landing the plane here, and so since this is uh, is episode four, we have to talk about our athlete.
1: Yeah. Um, so some of the athletes we have on our list: uh, Lou Gehrig, mm-hmm. uh, Brett Favre, yeah, uh, Charles Barkley, yeah, Adam Vinatieri, yeah. And do you want to put in the last <laughs> one here? And, who,
0: and then the shout out to the uh, to our strong audience in Ohio. Of course, number four, Aaron Kraft for the men's basketball team, a legend there. But uh, you know, we're just at that point pandering to our Ohio audience. But yeah, um, um, not a, not a, more of an honorable mention for our audience. Yeah. There
1: we go. Uh, <laughs> who, so who do you like from the list here? Who, who's who's your choice? Vinatieri has some roots here in Indiana. Um, he does playing yeah. for the Colts. Uh, Barkley uh, has has done well. Yeah, though he also wore thirty four.
0: And I feel like he was more well known in that number than and number four. Than number four. So I, I, I'm I'm going to cross him off the list. Um, I, and I'm going to eliminate Lou Gehrig, despite the fact, obviously, a legendary. But we can't go sure. three straight weeks with with a Yankee. A Yankee. So, no, I agree. Um, He's I down think down we're Brett we're down Favre to and Adam Brett Favre and uh, Adam Vinatieri. You know,
1: I I think I'm going to pull the trigger on Brett Favre.
0: Okay, I agree. Though Adam Vinatieri is the uh, most historically
1: clutch kicker in NFL history, I don't think you can tell the story of the NFL without Adam Vinatieri.
0: His heroics in the postseason are legendary, and you're right; they they are part of the fabric of the story of professional football. But at the same time, uh, Brett Favre was a was a
1: transcendent NFL quarterback, and was really a <sighs> I don't want to say he was a blueprint for what we see today, but he was part of that gunslinger mentality that I think has developed into what we see in a Patrick Mahomes or, right. or something like that. Like I, I, I do believe his passing attack did change the game.
0: Yes, and when I think of Brett Favre, I think of someone who deeply loved and enjoyed playing the game and that it came out in the way he played it his just sheer almost really was childlike enthusiasm when a big play was made and uh just he he looked he had the feel of the guy who was i'm just out in the backyard throwing the football around with my buddies here and just loving it but I'm getting paid a lot of money to do it, and it's on the professional stage.
1: And if you bl- believe the Wrangler jeans commercials, he's
0: still doing that. Yes, <laughs> indeed, indeed. He he has he has picked up a few post career uh, endorsement deals. He's got a razor or something like that. Doesn't he do like a razor commercial, like the like a one blade thing, where you're supposed to buy a razor and it lasts for like six months or a year or something, and the copper fit. He's got the CopperFit stuff. Does he do copper fits? Yeah, I think so. So we're gonna go with Brett Favre here. Let's uh let's move on to our one thing you like this week. We'll have you you start since uh there's there's a little bit of a story connected with it.
1: Yeah, so um (laughs) one thing that I that I just can't let go of this week is I've been tracking the coronavirus (laughs) across China and the world. Um there's John Hopkins has an epic Excellent website that'll tell you what Chinese province has how many diseases and how fast it's growing. I even okay. have an app on my phone <laughs> oh, gosh. to be tracking. Do this. you get
0: alerts when there's new? No alerts. Okay,
1: um, but uh, <laughs> but I do wake up every morning. And go. Oh, I wonder where the coronavirus is at. So, um, and part of that reason is I have a trip over spring break to Taiwan. Yeah, uh, which hit or miss or whether you know depending on your political persuasion whether Taiwan's part of China or not. Yeah. Um, so they've uh yeah, so we're trying to decide do we cancel this trip, do we keep going? Uh, so I've been tracking the coronavirus um like a crazy person. How about yourself?
0: Yeah, that's that's a little out of the box, I'm not gonna lie. That's uh
1: I encourage it. Yeah. <laughs> keep
0: up with your infectious diseases. There you go. There you go. So uh my one thing that I like this week is I finished the book by Michael Krueger called Christianity at the crossroads, which in part ties into our theme uh, of why study church history. It uh, is a fascinating look at what was happening in the second century. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are familiar in one sense with the first century because that's the period covered by the New Testament. But then sure. the second, ser- second century is this fascinating period that isn't as well known. Uh, and so there's a lot, of, a lot going on in terms of different potential heresies that are popping up, the formation of the biblical canon, and even just the structure of the church. And Kruger tells it in a in a, in a way that's helpful, and it's almost more um, topically oriented in terms of, like, here's a chapter on uh, why the early Christians were really into books and their intellectual thought, and here's a chapter on how the church was structured and that sort of thing. So uh, I found it very enjoyable.
1: Awesome. Yeah, and on your recommendation, I have already purchased that book.
0: So. Yeah, I think it'll be uh, it'll enjoyable and, and helpful for your... Uh, yeah, second century, not something we talk a lot about. Exactly. So, well, we uh, we have definitely accomplished what we set out to do in uh, covering our various and sundry topics. And so, until next time, the Lord bless you all real good. Later.